Chapter 16 of The Creature from Beyond Infinity by Henry Cutner, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Creature from Beyond Infinity, Chapter 16 Thordred Strikes. During the two weeks of Court's unconsciousness, a great deal had happened. Many large cities, like Manhattan, had been evacuated. If many carriers had appeared at once, chaos might have been the result. But the plague came with comparative slowness at first. Martial law, of course, had been declared, resulting in less indirect mortality than might have been expected. The refugees faced neither starvation nor epidemic. With well-oiled speed, the federal government had swung into action. All over the country, the evacuated populations of such cities as New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and New Orleans were billeted in hospitable homes. But the danger remained. More and more of the carriers appeared. Shining, nebulous clouds of glowing fog they slew by touch alone. There was no possible protection, for even lead armor was not always certain. Moreover, nobody knew the nature of these dread beings. Court racked his brain as he furiously drove on. Parts of the pattern were falling into place. Entropy, he thought, was the clue. The most puzzling problem was the apparent existence of an utterly alien element, the mysterious X. In a sane universe this could not exist. It could not be alien. For a time he pondered the Heisenberg uncertainty factor, but discarded it as a new idea came to him. The catalyst angle was perhaps the most logical one. Absently he reached into the dashboard compartment expecting to find cigarettes. There was a pack in it, nearly full. Court pressed in the dashboard cigarette lighter. Li Yang watched with interest. Court took the glowing lighter and held it to his cigarette. Abruptly he paused, staring at the lighter. He whistled startledly under his breath. The Oriental blinked in astonishment. What? An idea! Just an idea! A parallel! Like conduction! Listen, Li Yang, if you take a red-hot chunk of steel and put it next to a cold piece, what'll happen? The cold piece will be warmed. Yes, the heat will be transmitted. Only it isn't heat in this case. It's X. X is being transmitted to living beings." Court rubbed his forehead. "'What is X? Energy? Sure, but—I've got it!' He almost lost his grip on the wheel in his excitement. "'I've got it, Li Yang! Entropy! Life! Energy! Cosmic evolution!' "'Words,' said the Oriental, shrugging indifferently. "'What do they mean?' Court began to talk slowly, carefully, picking his way along the new theory. "'Evolution goes on constantly, you know. From the day the first amoeba was born, evolution kept on steadily. It'll always do that, all over this universe, and in other ones, too. Well, what's the ultimate evolution of life?' To what man is it given to know that? Li Yang replied fatalistically. There have been lots of theories. Plenty of science fiction writers have speculated about it, people like Verne and Wells. 
Some of them say we'll evolve into bodiless brains. Well, that isn't quite logical. Rather, it doesn't go far enough. Brains are made of cellular tissue, and therefore can die. But thought, life energy, is the ultimate form. The final evolution is toward bodiless energy, life without form or shape. A gas, perhaps." The Oriental nodded. "'I think I see. Well?' Court swung the sedan around a curve, taking it wide to avoid an overturned roadster. "'Entropy goes on regardless. Eventually, a universe is destroyed. Matter itself breaks up. But this life-energy isn't matter. It's left unchanged. It floats on through the void, like a dark nebula." His eyes widened. "'Perhaps that's the explanation for dark nebulae, like the coal-sack, for example. Well, that doesn't matter. This cosmic cloud of life-energy drifts through space. If it happens to reach a newly formed planet, like Earth billions of years ago, life is generated in the seas, and the cycle starts again. But if we already exists, as on Earth now, yes, the chunk of hot steel warms the cold one. Only it isn't heat that's transmitted, it's pure life energy, the super-life, to which we'll all evolve at the end of our universe. We're not ready for that yet, but it's come of its own accord. I am not sure I understand, Li Yang said thoughtfully. Take a familiar parallel. We know today that there's a hormone which causes growth. A hormone is a glandular extract. If we inject an overdose of that into an infant, he'll grow enormously. But he'll probably be an idiot, with little control over his huge body. He should have been left to grow naturally for he wasn't ready for the hormone in such a large dose. Neither is the earth ready for so large a step forward in evolution. But we've got an overdose of pure life energy, and it's transforming human beings into another form of life." "'Demons,' Li Yang said quietly. "'Perhaps, at least into poor devils. Well, that's the answer. But it still does not help matters. Here's a town. I think it has an airport." The field was a flurry of brightly lit activity. No carriers had yet appeared in this New Jersey city, but the air of tension was inevitable. By dint of argument, threats, pleas, and coercion, Court managed to charter a plane, though he would have no success in getting a pilot. Their services were difficult to obtain because of the national emergency. It was lucky that Court knew how to fly. He took time to drink black, scalding coffee at the airport restaurant, where curious glances were cast at his strange companions. There was little information he could gain from the scattered scraps of conversation. No one could guess where the plague might strike next. At the first sign of it, evacuation must take place with the aid of every automobile, railroad, and plane that could be pressed into service. A few local residents wandered in to stare curiously at the unusual activity. Their lives would continue in normal routine until the plague actually arrived on their doorsteps. 
Refreshed, Court took his companions into the plane, a speedy gyrocraft cabin ship. He felt grateful that he would not have to drive by car to Wisconsin. The trip would have necessitated a stop for sleeping, but in the plane he could reach his destination in six hours or so. Li Yang and Scipio were not startled by the air journey, for the golden spaceship had accustomed them to aerial travel. They watched with interest the countryside below. There was little chance to talk. The plane swept over Chicago, a desolate, evacuated metropolis. Chicagoans, Court had learned, were quartered all over Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and even Ontario. Canada, of course, had thrown open its border. For days, crowded boats had been plying between Chicago and Benton Harbor in Michigan. The plague had not struck Milwaukee, however, though transportation facilities were held in readiness there. Actually, only a few cities had been disrupted, and plague deaths had been surprisingly few. The real peril, which not many knew, lay in the future, if the plague spread and remained incurable. At Madison, Court landed and rented a car. The headlights were pale spears stabbing through the gloom as the highway unrolled monotonously. Court was beginning to feel sleepy, but he had purchased some benzedrine sulfate in Madison. He gulped some of the stimulant which refreshed him. In the back seat, Scipio polished his saber with an oiled rag he had found. Li Yang slept, choking and snoring, his head rolling ponderously in collars of fat. Now and again Court caught sight of carriers, shining blobs of radiance that flashed toward them and were gone. What would happen if the car struck one? Would it rush through an impalpable glow, or would there be a catastrophic explosion of liberated energy? Court's mind felt so blurred that he could not think clearly. His hands ached and trembled on the wheel. His elbow joints were throbbing. The soles of his feet seemed to be on fire. But he could not stop and rest. Home was not far now, and even then there would be no peace. The road was familiar to him. Wisconsin lay under yellow moonlight, and beside the road the river flowed along silently. They topped a rise and came in sight of the village. It seemed unchanged, but as they swept through it, Court noticed the absence of lights and movements. The street was completely deserted. From the general store a radio crackled inaudibly. On the store's porch was the body of a man in overalls, grotesquely sprawled. A dog slunk into view, stood frozen for a second, and then fled. Court thought with alarm of Marion Barton. Had she returned to the laboratory? Probably. But had she fled with a general exodus? Court's heart jumped as he saw a shining, shapeless glow drift into view from around a corner. A carrier. Another of the horrors was joining the first, but they made no effort to molest the speeding automobile. Court sucked in his breath. Once he reached the laboratory, all the weapons of his scientific career lay ready to his fingers. Then, knowing as he did the secret of the plague, he could fight, perhaps destroy the plague, and finally Thordred. Marion could help. Her aid would be invaluable, if— 
How much farther? Scipio grunted from the back seat. Li Yang woke up and sleepily rubbed his eyes, yawning. Almost there, Court said, a queer breathlessness in his voice. Just over this rise. Hold on. A glowing shadow had loomed up sinisterly before the car, blocking the road. It was a carrier, silent, motionless, menacing. Court made a swift decision. He could drive straight at the thing, but that was too long a chance. Going so fast, though, he had little choice. He jammed on the brake, at the same time twisting the wheel. The car's tires rasped and screamed as the vehicle slid sideward. It rolled ominously on two wheels, righted itself, and plunged off the road. The occupants were jolted and flung about as the sedan lurched across a plowed field. A tire blew out with a deafening report. Desperately, Court fought the wheel. Bang! Another tire had gone, but Court jammed his foot on the accelerator. In the rear mirror he could see that the carrier was still standing in the same place. It was not pursuing them. He got the car back on the road, picked up speed. As it limped on, the carrier was left behind. Court drew a deep breath. "'Gods!' Scipio bellowed. "'I almost stabbed myself with this blade!' Li Yang gurgled with amusement. "'You are not as well padded as I, but I am glad our journey is almost over. It is, is it not, Court?' Yes, this is home." Court's voice died away as he jerked the car to a halt. They were at the huge, rambling structure that had housed the laboratory. The building was gone. It had been raised to the ground in an irregular splotch of blackly charred ruin. A crater yawned among the debris. The laboratory was destroyed, and with it the chance to save the earth. Sick hopelessness was so strong in court that for a long, dreadful moment his heart was numb. He seemed to be dissociated from his body. As if he were a distant onlooker, he stared at the sharp clarity of the ruins under the moon. His shadow stretched out before him on the ochre pathway. On one side was the taller shadow of Scipio. On the other was the obese, dark blotch thrown by Li Yang's form. The grasses rustled dryly in the cool night wind. The embers were still warm, for smoke coiled up lazily from the dying coals. Apparently the work of destruction had occurred lately. Was it an accident? No, Thordred must be responsible. Court might have expected this. When Thordred acquired his memory pattern, he had also become familiar with the laboratory and all its potentialities. Naturally, he would wish to destroy it, lest use of its powers be used against him. But why had he waited two whole weeks? Perhaps because he had not been able to locate the laboratory until now. Despite having acquired Quartz memories, Thordred was a stranger in this new, complicated civilization. Steve! The scream cut through the air, bringing Court around sharply. It was Marion's voice. Chapter 17 Marion The cry came from the hillside beyond the house. 
For a second Stephen caught the glimpse of a white figure running toward him in the bright moonlight. He raced to meet the girl. She collapsed in his arms, panting and disheveled. Her hair was a tumbled brown mass of ringlets. For several minutes she could only gasp inarticulately. "'Steve, thank God you're safe. I saw the headlights of a car, but I didn't know it was you. But I thought if you were alive, you'd come back to the lab.' Looking down into her eyes, Court felt a queer tightness in his throat. He interrupted in a voice that was scarcely audible. "'Marion, I—I I love you.' The girl caught her breath as she stared. Then suddenly she smiled with dazzling brilliance. "'I'm glad,' she whispered, and pressed her head against Court's chest. "'I'm glad you're human after all.' Yes, Court thought to himself, he was human. For years he had refused to admit it. But now a chuckle started behind his lips. He gloried in it. The others came running up, staring at Marion. She drew away from Court. Thordred wrecked the lab, she explained. Who are these men? She eyed them inquisitively. No time for introductions now, Court snapped. Tell me what's happened. You've seen Thordred, or you wouldn't know his name. She nodded. He came here two hours ago and destroyed the house. I was the only one who got out alive. I saw the ship not far away. When I started to run, a beam of light flashed out, and I was paralyzed. A huge bearded man came running and carried me into the ship. He seemed to know who I was." "'Of course,' Kord agreed. He acquired all my memories with his damned machine. There was a girl named Jansaya. She didn't say anything. She just watched. Thordred showed me dozens of men and women in the ship, asleep, cataleptic. He said he had captured them to start a new civilization. He was going to another planet, and he decided to take me, too. Since I'd been your assistant, Steve, he figured I'd be a good assistant for him. My scientific training would be invaluable to him. He told me you were dead, that he'd killed you with a ray in New York. So he thinks I'm dead, Court observed. That means he didn't know the ray only paralyzed me. Marion didn't look at him as she continued. I pretended to fall in love with Thordred's wishes, said I'd go with him. So he didn't bother to put me into catalepsy. He started the motors and the ship began to rise. Then I... I... Go on, Court said gently. He wasn't watching me. I saw what he was doing at the instrument panel, and I jumped at it. Somehow I pushed all the levers and buttons before he grabbed me. The ship crashed. I wanted to kill Thordred Steve, because I thought he'd killed you. If you were dead, I didn't want to keep on living." For an answer, Court drew the girl closer. She went on talking hurriedly. The ship was wrecked completely. It's right over the ridge. All the prisoners were killed, and Jansaya was hurt. I tried to help her, but Thordred dragged me away. I don't know how he got me out alive. He was like a madman. He salvaged some weapons from the wreck and made me go with him. I don't know why or what he intended. I think he wanted to kill me later, Steve, slowly. 
Court's face was chalk-white. Clipping his words, he gave his orders. Let's find the ship. We may be able to salvage something, too. Li Yang, Scipio, watch out for Thordred, though I don't think he'll bother us now. The four mounted the slope. At the top of the ridge they halted. In the valley before them lay the vast golden bulk of the spaceship, near a streamlet that made a winding ribbon of quicksilver between its banks. There was no sign of life near the vessel. They descended the slope. Suddenly Marion cried out softly and gripped Court's arm. The four halted abruptly. A shining oval drifted into view from behind a bush. It was a carrier, a glowing fog fading toward its edges into invisibility. With more than human speed it moved toward the group. Court instinctively thrust the girl behind him. Scipio lifted his hard fist in futile defiance. Then he remembered the saber and drew it. But there was no defense against a carrier, Court knew. He opened his mouth to shout a command to flee, but for some reason that he could not define he waited. The shining thing halted. It was motionless, and Court was conscious of an intent regard. The creature was watching him. Why? Such a thing had never happened before. Always the carrier had leaped eagerly, avidly upon then prey. Why did this horror wait? Court inexplicably felt something stir and move in his brain. Briefly the image of old Sammy, with his brown wrinkled face and his mop of white hair, rose up vividly in his mind. Behind him Marion's voice whispered like a prayer. Sammy! The shining thing seemed to hear. It hesitated and drew back. Suddenly it turned, speeding up the slope, and vanished over the ridge. Good God! Court whispered through dry lips. Marion, do you think that was. Sammy? White faced, the girl nodded. Yes, Steve, and I think he knew us, remembered us. That's why. She could not go on. Well, Scipio broke in roughly, why do we wait? Let's go on. In silence, Court led the way down the slope. Presently, he shivered a little and Marion glanced sharply at him. Do you feel that, too? What? Wait a minute. Yes, some radiation. There, Li Yang said, pointing. Court followed the gesture, saw the spot of light. Blazing like the heart of a blue sun, flaming with a fierce and terrible radiance, the light speck glowed upon the hull of the ship. Instantly Court guessed what it was. The atomic energy that powered the huge motors had broken free. No longer prisoned by its guarding, resistant sheath, it was sending its powerful vibrations out like ripples widening on a pool. "'Don't go any closer!' Court clutched Scipio's arm, halting him. "'That's dangerous. It can fry us to a crisp.' "'Gods!' the Carthaginian stared. "'Is that true? A mere glow of light?' In theory. Court knew something of atomic energy, though it had never been achieved practically on Earth. In the old days men had feared that unleashed atomic energy would destroy the whole planet, its fiery breath spreading swiftly like a poisonous infection. But Court knew there was no sign of that. 
The rate of matter consumption was far too slow. In a thousand years the valley might be eaten away, but not in five years or five minutes. Scipio! The faint cry came from nearby, startling them. The Carthaginian's hand flew to his sword as he whispered, Jansiah! And again came the cry, plaintive, gull-sweet, infinitely sad. Help me! With a muttered oath, Scipio whirled and ran. Court followed at his heels. A mound of bushes clustered a hundred feet away, and in its shelter lay Jansiah. The fading moonlight washed her hair with gold. She lay broken, dying. "'Jansiah,' Scipio said tonelessly. He dropped to his knees beside the girl and lifted her in his mighty arms. With a tired sigh she let her head fall on his bronze shoulder. "'My... my back!' After Court completed a hasty examination his eyes met Scipio's. He did not need to speak, for the Carthaginian nodded slowly. Jansiah's torn gown and bruised limbs told how she had dragged herself toward safety. Thordred left you? Scipio asked in a queer, hoarse voice. The strangely beautiful green eyes misted with pain as she held herself close to Scipio's barrel chest. The Carthaginian's gargoyle face was the color and hardness of granite in the moonlight. I... I think... I might have loved you, warrior," Jansiah murmured. Then she sobbed restrainedly with unbearable agony. The golden lashes drooped to shield the sea-green eyes. The tender lips scarcely moved as the girl whispered, "'There was not ever any pain in old Atlantis.' Her head drooped on his arm and was motionless. Gently, Scipio laid her in the shelter of the bushes. He touched her hair, her eyes, then tenderly he touched his lips to those red, silent ones, from which even the faint hint of cruelty had gone. As he drew back, the last glow of the sinking moon failed. The eternal dark accepted Jansiah and shrouded her. The starlight was cold as glittering ice on Scipio's savage eyes as he rose. He stood towering there, motionless, staring at nothingness. Slowly he turned to face the west. "'Court,' he rumbled distantly, "'you heard her?' "'Yes,' Court said in a low, tense voice. "'He left her to die.' Abruptly the Carthaginian's face was that of a blood-ravening demon the mighty hands flexed into talons. "'He is mine to slay,' Scipio breathed through flaring nostrils. "'Remember that. He is mine to slay.' But Jansiah could no longer hear. She lay limp, slim and lovely, and forever untouchable now, shielded from all hurt. She slept as a child might sleep. "'You wish to kill me?' a harsh voice asked mockingly. "'Well, I am waiting, Scipio.' From the shadows of the bushes Thordred's giant form rose into view. Startled bewilderment momentarily paralyzed Court. He cursed himself for a fool. He might have expected this, 
but finding Jansaya had made him relax his vigilance. Glaring at Thordred, he stepped aside to stand in front of Marion. Li Yang's fat yellow face was expressionless. Scipio, after one hoarse oath, had drawn his saber. He was walking forward, his eyes burning with blood-hunger. Thordred's hand dipped into his garments, came up holding a lens-shaped crystal that shot forth a spear of green light. It touched Scipio. The Carthaginian halted in mid-stride, with the saber lifted, a grin of fury frozen on the gargoyle face. Court leaped for Thordred, but the green ray caught him, too. The life was drained from him in a shock of icy cold. He stood motionless, paralyzed as the ray darted aside. From the corner of his eye, Court saw Marion and Li Yang stiffen into immobility. The four stood helpless, while Thordred tossed his crystal from hand to hand and grinned. "'You fools!' his harsh voice grated. "'So I did not kill you that other time, did I, Court? Well, I shall rectify that omission now. If not for the interference of all of you, I should never have lost the ship. Yet I can still have my vengeance.' He glanced down significantly at the lens he held. You shall die slowly, in the utmost agony. You shall burn gradually as I increase the strength of the ray. After that, I do not know what I shall do. Perhaps I can build another ship. The knowledge I have stolen should enable me to do that. But that comes after my revenge." The bearded face was murderous in the moonlight. The crystal flashed a ray that struck Court on the chest. The green light turned yellow. Simultaneously, blinding pain racked the man. He smelled the odor of his own burning flesh. "'You shall die,' Thordred gritted. "'All of you. This is my vengeance.'" Chapter 18 The Man Who Lived Again when Thordred placed Ardath's body in the small spaceship and sent it hurtling toward the sun, he had thought the Kyrian dead. His fear of Ardath's giant intellect had been so great that he would feel safe only when the solar inferno had utterly consumed it. Yet, by making doubly sure that his former master would meet death, Thordred had committed a serious error. For Ardath was not dead. He awoke slowly, painfully, only vaguely conscious of his surroundings. For a time he lay quietly, blinking and striving to understand. He kept his eyes closed after a single glance at a dazzling glare. He turned his head away from the bright light and reopened his eyes. His gaze took in his surroundings. He was in a spaceship, a small one that was unfamiliar to him. Through the ports in the walls showed the starlit blackness of interplanetary space. He was incredibly weak. He sat up, massaging his limbs until his numbed circulation was restored to normal. Then he rose with a great effort and looked around. Sunlight flamed through a row of ports. Ardath instantly realized that he was falling directly into the rapidly enlarging sun. 
He saw the controls, sprang toward them, almost collapsing in his weakness. He examined the unfamiliar apparatus, tentatively fingering the panel. Presently the puzzle of strangeness was solved in his amazingly swift mind. He tried a lever, then another, and knew that he was master of the unknown ship. The vital problem just now was to escape the sun's attraction. Luckily, he was not yet even close to the chromosphere. He turned the vessel in a wide arc. After staring through the ports, he aimed its nose at Earth. Then he locked the controls and searched for food. Foreseeing emergencies, Court had stocked the little ship well. Much of the food was unfamiliar to Ardath, but he sampled it intelligently. Brandy stimulated him and gave him strength. As he ate, he pondered the situation. How had he got here? What had awakened him from his cataleptic sleep? The last thing he remembered was emerging from the laboratory in his own ship, to encounter Thordred's ruthless blow. The bearded giant had betrayed him, but how long ago had that been? How long had Ardath slept? During his last period of awakening, he had arranged an automatic alarm which would react to the presence of any unusual mentality existing on Earth. Ardath wished to take no chances of sleeping past the lifetimes of geniuses. But he had not had time to set that alarm before Thordred stunned him. Everyone in the Golden Ship should have slept on until infinity, unless awakened by some outside force. What had that been? Again, Ardath went to a port and studied the constellations, noting the changes that time had made. He computed roughly that at least twenty centuries had elapsed since his last awakening. Perhaps, through his failure to set the automatic alarm, he had already slept through the lifetimes of innumerable supermentalities. Though Ardath did not know it, of course, he had not awakened to find Moses, Confucius, Socrates, Galileo, Newton, and a dozen others. The alarm, had it been set, would have aroused him when those men appeared on earth. Ardath glanced thoughtfully toward the sun. Its powerful rays, unshielded by any atmosphere, had awakened him. He felt gratitude to the unknown builder of this ship, who had installed transparent ports, through which the vital radiations had poured. If the vessel had been on any other course, Ardath might have slept on to the end of time but the sun's rays had destroyed the artificial catalepsy. Ardath rose and began to search the little ship. Its architecture was obviously terrestrial, the natural development of art forms he had seen in ancient days on Earth. Moreover, the use of earth metals in the construction, and the absence of any unusual ones, confirmed this theory. Certain equipment that Ardath found interested him. The mystery of a blowtorch he solved without difficulty. An electromagnet and vials of acids made him nod thoughtfully. When he measured one of the ports carefully, he realized that it coincided exactly with the size and shape of the entry ports on his own ship. The equipment indicated that the unknown owner of this little vessel had expected to find a barrier difficult to pass. 
the curious similarity of the ports on both ships added up to an unescapable conclusion. Someone on Earth had built this ship in order to reach and enter Ardath's craft. Obviously he had succeeded, but without the use of atomic energy. He had duplicated the alloy that coated the hull of the Kyrian vessel, yet the energy was electrical in nature. Ardath's race had used electricity once, so many eons ago, that it was mere legend when he had been born. Atomic energy had supplanted it. Yet Ardath must work with the tools at hand. He found himself experiencing difficulty in breathing. The air supply, of course, had not bothered him during his cataleptic state, but now it was becoming a problem. He examined the air renewers and purifiers, found them simple but effective. Luckily, there were the necessary chemicals aboard the ship to renew the exhausted apparatus. The names on the containers meant nothing to Ardath, but the chemicals were easily recognizable. In only one case did he find a test necessary. It would be a long journey back to Earth. Meanwhile, Ardath examined some maps and charts that had been in a cupboard as well as a popular novel which one of the workmen who built the ship had left in a corner and forgotten. These would be invaluable for learning the language. Since Ardath already knew Latin from his last period of awakening, he could learn English without too much difficulty. He could even approximate the present pronunciation, once he understood the letters, like W, which Romans did not have. The luckiest find of all, after all, was a newspaper. Two problems faced Ardath. He must find his own ship, and he needed a weapon. Painstakingly, he analyzed the situation. Day after day dragged on while the spaceship fled toward Earth. The Kyrian studied the charts, the book, and the newspaper, striving to understand. From a rubber stamp on the maps, he learned that the owner of the vessel was named Stephen Court, and that he lived in Wisconsin near a town which Ardath finally located on one of the charts. That became his destination. The Kyrian's keen understanding of psychology aided him in understanding what had happened during his unconsciousness. Placing himself in the respective positions of Thordred and Stephen Court, he applied rules of logic. When Court had entered the golden spaceship and found the cataleptic bodies, he would naturally have tried to awaken them. When he awoke Thordred, what had happened? There were two possibilities. Thordred, Ardath realized now, wanted power above all else. He had resented the Kyrian's domination. After apparently succeeding in killing his former master, he would not have been willing to obey court. Rather, his lust for power would have been given fresh fuel. He and court would have become either enemies or friends. In the latter case, Ardath now faced two opponents. But why should Court, having built this ingenious and expensive spaceship, have been willing to destroy it by aiming it at the sun? He would naturally have wished to retain it for later use. A logical man does not destroy valuable equipment, and only a logical and intelligent person could have built this vessel. But Thordred, on the other hand, would have wished the smaller ship destroyed, so that he would possess the only spaceship on Earth. 
Such tactics would strengthen his power. Unless there were already other spacecraft in existence. That was impossible. This one was obviously patterned on Ardath's own vessel. A man with sufficient knowledge to create it would have used it, first of all, to visit the original ship. That sounded logical, though not entirely certain. Court would probably have resented the destruction of his property. That indicated that he and Thordred were enemies. But from that conclusion, Ardath could go no further. He could only wait until he had reached Earth and visited the home of Stephen Court in Wisconsin. If Court lived, he would certainly be an ally. And now Ardath concentrated on creating a weapon. Equipment was at hand, and electricity. Atomic energy Ardath could not manufacture at present, but he thought it would not be necessary. Already he had a plan for a weapon in mind. It must be able to convey a strong shock, or even a fatal one, over quite a distance. That necessitated some conductor of the current. A jet of water, a thin spray perhaps, might do the trick. But the use of ordinary water was not quite satisfactory. Ardath began to experiment with the limited laboratory he had at his command. He worked arduously, sleeping and eating only when he found time, while the ship sped toward its destination. Earth grew from a star to a spinning globe, cloud-sheathed, and then into a vast concave disk that blotted out the starry void. Ardath found the outline of North America, checked it with his maps. Then he sent the vessel arrowing toward Lake Michigan, which was visible even from beyond the atmosphere. It was night before he landed outside the village near Quartz home. He lowered the ship silently among the concealing trees and slipped toward the lights of the settlement. His clothing would arouse curiosity, he realized, but that could not be helped. Taking his new weapon, which was awkwardly bulky, he moved forward. Luck was with him. A youth, idling along the highway in a dim stretch, paused to stare at Ardath. The Kyrian took advantage of the opportunity. Mouthing the unfamiliar words carefully, he asked, "'Can you say where Stephen Court lives?' It sounded like, "'Can Yoa say where Stephen Court lives?' The boy blinked. "'Sure. You're a foreigner, ain't you?' When no answer came, he went on pointing. "'Right up the road there,' he gave explicit directions. "'But I wouldn't go up there if I was you. There was a fire up there just a little while ago, and folks saw some funny kind of airship hanging around. They think it crashed in the valley behind the house, but nobody's gone to look. We stay away from Court's place, since he had a case of the plague there.' Without a word, Ardath left the lad and hurried on. He had understood most of what had been said. A funny kind of airship. Could that be the golden space vessel? By the gods, if it had crashed. The ruins of the house told their own story. Ardath hesitated, then skirted it to climb up the slope beyond the charred foundations. The valley behind the house, the boy had said. Ardath topped the ridge. His thin, patrician face went cold as marble at the sight before him. 
The ship was wrecked, he saw at a glance. And he saw, too, the moonlit figures of huge Thordred and his paralyzed prisoners. As the ray flashed out from the lens in Thordred's hand, Ardath ran swiftly down the slope, concealing himself amid the bushes. As an odor of charred flesh came to his nostrils, his eyes were suddenly remorseless as death. At last he was close enough. He rose from the shadows and called softly, Thordred! The bearded giant whirled, shocked amazement in the amber eyes. The yellow ray swung wide, out of his control. Simultaneously, Ardath lifted the weapon he held, and a thin jet of fluid shot from its muzzle, splashing on Thordred's arm. The giant yelled in agony, and his lens fell to the ground. "'You betrayed me, Thordred,' Ardath said emotionlessly. "'It is just that you die.' He stepped forward. The huge bearded figure swayed and writhed in agony, striving to break free from the invisible grip that held it. Ardath's foot slipped on a rounded stone. For a second the liquid jet wavered from its mark, but swept back swiftly. Thordred was gone. He flung himself back into the shelter of the bushes. The crashing of the underbrush told of his flight. Ardath shrugged and lowered his weapon. He is harmless now, he said, and bent to pick up the lens. Briefly, he eyed the three men and the girl, still paralyzed. Scipio, Li Yang, and two strangers. He made a hasty adjustment on the crystal, sent a blue glow sweeping out to bathe the four. The paralysis fled. Our death, Li Yang said. You came in good time. By the gods, yes! Scipio roared. His voice went soft with regret. Though not in time to save Jansaya. His eyes clouded. Lifting his saber, he plunged forward. I'll be back with Thordred's head, he promised over his shoulder, and vanished into the woods. You, you're our death? Cord asked. The burn on his chest was aching painfully, but it was not deep and it had been automatically cauterized. He stared at the rescuer. The Kyrian nodded. I am Ardath. You seem to know of me. Are you Stephen Court? Yes, but how did you learn English? How did you escape from the Sun Trap? What—wait! Ardath was staring down at the wrecked ship. Before all else, the atomic energy must be prisoned again. It is— he fumbled for the right word. Dangerous. To approach it closely means death. Lead? Court suggested. When Ardath looked puzzled, he gave the atomic number. Only a special alloy will insulate the rays of atomic energy. Do you see that container? It looks like a speck from here, beside the spot of light. Only that can hold the power. He frowned. The power must be placed in its sheath again, but— It means death, Li Yang broke in. Very well, I shall do it. Court clutched the fat arm. You need not sacrifice yourself. Ardath's face was expressionless as he went on in his painful, stilted English. Whoever goes must be quick. The rays kill swiftly. Hurry to the ship. 
slide the container over the little globe of atomic energy and put the cover in place. That is all. After that it will be safe to approach." "'Steve,' Marion said unsteadily, "'let me go.' "'No!' Court's arm went around the girl, drawing her close. "'Not you. Do we need to make this sacrifice our death?' The Kyrian nodded sorrowfully. "'The energy will spread out till it touches ores. Then it will expand faster, until the earth itself will be destroyed." There was a sudden interruption. From the bushes behind the group a glowing nimbus of light drifted. It was a carrier, but it did not approach the three. Instead it sped down the slope toward the ship. Ardath stared. "'Marion, do you suppose?' Court said hoarsely. "'Maybe, Steve. If that was Sammy, he may have heard us.' They watched as the weird carrier fled toward the ship. It reached the hull, bent over, and picked up a small object from the ground. It made a swift motion, and the glare of atomic energy vanished. "'He did hear us!' Cort exulted. "'Good old Sammy!' The light nimbus was drifting away toward the other side of the valley. Presently it was hidden from sight, but before that Ardath was striding down to the ship. He returned, holding in his hands an oval container of dark, lustrous metal. It was the sheath for the atomic energy. "'We have much to talk about,' he said to Court. "'Your language! I must master it better!' Scipio came back, cursing and swinging his sabre. His deep chest rose and fell as he panted. "'Thordred got away. I could not catch him.' Court took immediate command. Back to the road. There's plenty of room in the car. We'll head directly for Washington and make plans. I think you can help us against the plague, Ardath. Your atomic energy has already given me an idea. The plague? Ardath asked. I'll help if I can, but I am sorry you did not destroy Thordred, Scipio. I fear he will trouble us again. The Carthaginian did not answer. He grinned unpleasantly, fingering the saber-blade, as he followed the others back toward the ridge. End of chapter 18